and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. My name is Greg Hunter, recording from a Comics Journal satellite lab in Minneapolis, Minnesota, back after a brief January hiatus. Thank you for sticking with us. The episode you're listening to is the second part of this podcast's first two-parter with our guest Eddie Campbell of the Alex Stories, Bacchus, and books like The Lovely Horrible Stuff, which we talk about quite a bit here. Now, the format of this podcast involves, of course, ten distinct questions attesting out of the perfect comics interview, hence the Satellite Lab. Not a conceit. I've spent thousands. This interview doesn't adhere to that list too neatly, though I hope you'll agree. It goes to a number of compelling places. The donut's off the bat on this one. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you'd like to hear more, well... You can find every other installment of Comic Book Decalogue on iTunes in the feed of our sister podcast, TCJ Talkies, retired but still available, along with new Decalogue interviews on the way. Right now, please enjoy Eddie Campbell, Part 2. I want to ask you one question about reckoning with the canon and the history of comics purely on the level of taste. Ordinarily, we'd ask at this point, what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? Mm-hmm. I'm having trouble with that one. Let me make a whole genre of it and to say that I can't connect with a superhero comic. Yeah, you know, I, I've written a couple. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, through the exigencies of having to make a living or whatever. I've, once or twice I've... But I don't understand it. I don't get it. I've got to see these... I've got to see these Marvel movies. I've got to see these movies that keep coming out. And I remember what I liked about those 1960s comics as a as a ten-year-old. And nothing that I liked was ever in the movies. Mm-hmm. Reading those... I used to read those... Reading those old mid-60s Marvel comics as, as a ten-year-old. I'm not saying there's anything great about them. I, I, I always thought that was what America was like, except exaggerated with a bit of super stuff. Whereas nowadays, a superhero film, it's like, it's like going to the San Diego Comic Convention. It's like everybody in the, wor- every, everybody in, in the environment is, is a super character wearing a costume. Everybody you meet mm. is super... Whatever was special about being super is was lost a long time ago. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing unusual about it. There's nothing strange about it. Well, how do you rate those, let's say, the and 60s Marvel books in terms of crap, then? If you were to go and revisit a 60s Jack Kirby comic, for instance, would it speak to you on the level of craft? Would there be pleasures in revisiting it in purely formal terms? I'd be revisiting mine. Eddie Campbell, the ten-year-old. I, I would, uh, I would, I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want to make an argument for it as his art. I'm not saying you couldn't. I'm just saying I, 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 I don't. I, I, I can, I can tell the difference between nostalgia and and, and art. If you know what I mean. I mean, I, things that I like I, for for nostalgic reasons. I'm not going to argue a case for them being important works for, of art in the world. And more and more of Kirby gets included in these, you know, masters of American comics. I think he undoubtedly had a had a vision of the world that was kind of remarkable. 
The first time I ever heard of DNA was in a Jack Kirby comic. Is that right? In 1970. He was always thinking about things. Whatever was new in science, he was trying to he was trying to use it for his own purposes. I Clones. The first time I ever heard of a clone was in a Jack Kirby comic. Way back. I'm talking 1970 again when he was when he started doing those DC comics and he was writing them himself. It was um it was in it was in Jimmy Olsen. There was all these Jimmy Olsons walking mm-hmm. about, I think, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> or was it the Newsboy Legion? He had different. He cloned versions of the Newsboy Legion characters or something like that. It all seemed completely impossible and strange. I don't, I don't know that it's still possible to do something which is strange in a comic. I, I think it's possible to do something that's strange. I don't, know, I don't think it's ever going to happen on a comic again. I don't know. Now, in the creation of, of Bacchus, which you referred to as your attempt to do an American-style comic in the sense of telling a story with people who had heightened abilities of some sort, how often in practice did you find yourself having to avoid or subvert or reckon with, in any sense, the tropes of the American superhero comic. Right. Well, Bacchus, which is, which is now out complete in two volumes, by the way, um, <laughs> and you can get them in a box set along with the, the Alec book for 100 bucks, I believe. I started out wanting to do a, a, an action comic. Mm. But within a couple of issues, that's not what it was about anymore. It wasn't about people with remarkable abilities. I like the idea of the gods. I like the idea of gods wandering among mortals. But if you have the gods wandering among mortals in ancient times, everything is strange. You know, for it to have the, the element of strangeness, you've really got to do it in modern times to have. And yet, so often in the comic books, things that Things that could be strange are always reduced to just action possibilities. So that looking at these movies now, the only the only value in a character is is he going to look good in an action scene? See, one of the, one of the, one of my characters in in um, one of my favourite characters in Bacchus was the Stygian leech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the Stygian leech is, is a big slobbery. Um, He's like a big slug that <laughs> sits on the table and doesn't do anything. And he get he has adventures and he gets passed around a bit, but he's just a big slug who doesn't do anything. At some point he gets dropped on somebody's head and he leeches all the power of Zeus out of the eyeball, eyeball kid's head. Yeah. And, and, and now the leech is the most powerful creature in the known universe. But he's still a big lumpy slobby thing that sits on the table and doesn't do anything. And that idea appealed to me. Mm-hmm. That idea was strange and it was weird. And... But you never get that in the movies. In the movie, anybody that's got a power, it's only so he can run around and mix it up with other people who have powers in these, in these balletic extravaganzas where they save the world mm-hmm. if once a year. Now, one question we normally ask that I, I'm curious about in your case, just because so much of your cartooning history is documented in your comics itself, is what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Recently. Recently? 
I've kind of... What I was talking about before, having lost this context... Like I've, I've spent three years doing the, this book about the history of cartoon, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not creating new cartoons myself. I've... And it's probably a couple of years there where I just hadn't... I haven't created any new comics work. What was that? The last thing I did was the book I did with Neil Gaiman, which came out in two years ago, The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountain, for which we did the tour. Recently I've been drawing myself out of this funk. I've been illustrating. Mm-hmm. Illustrating. <laughs> the... The stories of, of my wife, Audrey Niffenegger. Um, a quick catch up there. I, I got divorced about four years ago. And um, this year I married Audrey Niffenegger, the novelist. And for some time we've been working on... Um, I've been working on a book where I'm, I'm illustrating her, her short stories. Of which she's, she's got a dozen or more short stories and... They've got elements of the weird and the strange. And a couple of them are just real-life things. But one interesting thing is she's got quite a few female protagonists. And I've, I've, been, I've been enjoying the, the challenge of, of creating unique and individual female characters, which is because I've always been writing from my own point of view. It's not something that... Um, it, it's, it's something new for me. It's a new... It's a new thing to grapple with but um, anyway we've got a deal on this and um, we've already got 100 pages in the can who knows, might be out at the end of next year or something I'm compelled to ask about actually uh, the lovely horrible stuff with respect to your funk because in that book you know it looks very different from the Alex stories uh, of years past in that there's more computer artwork on the page and I was curious with your usage of that were you trying to find a way to make comics interesting for yourself? I, I thought about that book earlier when we were talking about the history of cartooning as well, because you know, once once uh, computers are introduced, there is a, a certain lack of historical precedent that's implicit in the work. I get into a completely new dynamic with the, with the, with that book because all the lettering is ha- is hand lettered in my usual um, uh, crazy sort of random scribble I want it to look hand lettered I, I, I realise some I realise it probably veers it totters on the edge of illegibility often but I want the lettering to feel like like a raw experience and the lettering takes up half the space allotted to a, to a panel and its caption often and the rest is a, a condensed Mishmash of, of of Photoshop and and, and ink drawing and um, the thing about the thing about using the computer is that you have to let it go the way that's that it wants to go or the way that it's easiest to go and very often it, it, if if you want to it, it's so easy to to drag a photograph in mm. I'm using this photograph for reference. Wait a minute, what about just drag it in here? <laughs> what about just drag it into the picture and play around with it? And sometimes, just to get that complexity of, 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 of visual information in a very small space, like in, in the money book, for instance, there's, 
there's there's one picture where which is kind of close up of the of of the Yappies, the islanders on the island of Yap, hauling their stone money back across the sea in their outrigger canoes. And there's a close up where, where, of, of of the sea spray of the water, and and the whole thing it's just so intense and turbulent that you think you might drown at any minute. Mm. But that sea spray is actually a photograph of smoke huh. that I hauled in from somewhere else. So I'm talking I'm not just talking about saving the trouble of drawing one thing or another, but making one thing stand for another in, in almost a metaphorical kind of way. There's a, I was doing a lot of that. There's things that look like photographs that are not... There's a conceit in there where I'm using these uh, bubblegum trading cards. Every one of them is made by me, mm -hmm. but I made them look like it actually... There's one or two places where it looks like it actually got hold of old... Right. Bob. Even the one where I used the one of the, uh, the Mars attacks. Because <laughs> I think there were... 52 in the set, and I numbered this 53, and it was like an alternate. Ending. I don't know, you know, as a complete alternate ending to the, the Mars Attacks bubblegum cars. I was like, there's more malarkey in those than, than meets the eye at first. There's, uh, I mean, I was, I was having, I was having fun with them. The, the, the money book, the lovely horrible stuff. There was a, I think that book took a lot out of me. I think it left me. I think I wrestled with so much real stuff in there. I kind of. I dislodged myself out of my comfort zone and just... <laughs> I, I kind of left myself stranded on the on the beach of that sandy island in the South Seas where, like O'Keefe in the story. Um, I felt a bit wrecked after that one. In fact, it was shortly after that book that I got divorced. It, it was... I think I was, I'm obliged to ask you how it was. I'm kind of, I'm kind of playing out in that book the, disin, the disintegration of my own family life in a, in a metaphorical way. The, uh, the, the the whole money arguments were really arguments for a disintegration of a harmony in my life. Was the creation of the pieces about your stepfather? Even at the time of their creation, was that more taxing emotionally than the traditional Alec comics? I get. I didn't think so at the time, but I think probably in retrospect. I think in the end, my feeling was that I shouldn't have done a comic about this. I should. I shouldn't be. I, I think I've, I'd kind of wrecked my own concept of what I was doing by thinking, you know, how far can I push? Have I pushed this too far? Should I? Should I? Should I be? Putting real people in here to such a raw, in such a raw form, and, and um, where they where they don't get the chance to to give their side of the story, I, I you know, and so many, so many comics today are maybe going too far, you know, um, Alison Bechtel's other one and Ross Chests and. We're treading a, a fine line of propriety. Mm. This is a shifting of gears. We had spoke before we were recording about your your meeting with uh, Will Eisner, some of his, his contemporaries, and I did want to make sure I asked if you can narrow it down. What's the best advice you've heard about making comics? 
in your time as an artist? The best advice about making comics? Um, well, to be a beginner, I would say... There's not a line you cross where you one day become a, an artist, a comic artist. You must be so mad in the first place that you always imagined you were one. It never, it never occurred to you that you weren't. I used to, I used to do way back in the, the late seventies. I used to do these. I used to do the the Ace Rock and Roll Club stories. I I used to do them up complete print ready. You know, with the, the zipper tones and everything. And I'd finish up each story and I'd take it to the photocopy shop, photocopy, and I'd keep a, a file of them all at print size and then I'd put the artwork under the bed. But in my head, it's, I almost imagined that I'd sent it to the publisher, it'd been published, and the cheque was in the mail. Right. <laughs> and the cheque didn't arrive for another five or six years. But I believed it was in the mail. Mm -hmm. In my head, it was it was <laughs> it was it was on its way. I, I I don't think you need I don't think you need the the recognition of Marvel Comics or or Art Spiegelman or whoever to be an artist. I think you can be an artist. You can be an, as good an artist as you've ever going to be at the age of fourteen. Putting them all under the bed. But you must have a, have a concept of art, and you must be rigorous with yourself. You must you must be giving yourself any free passes. You must demand the the utmost, and it becomes harder actually. That never gets easier. One of the reasons I've been doing less and less is I've become hypercritical. Mm -hmm. I can't believe how crap it is. You know, I look at my art and I think this is crap, but then everything else is crap as well. I can't think of anything else that's that I, would, that I would rather be. I wouldn't rather be him or that other guy because they're even worse. Um, but it just it gets harder and harder to actually like anything or enjoy anything or, or to do the work and be happy with it. I think you'll, you'll never be as happy with it as you were when you were putting it under the bed. And how to be an artist... That, to me, is a very compelling look at a period in your life because it takes place during the emergence of Art Spiegelman, of Alan Moore, in, in the public consciousness, and you are at once, with the case of Moore, you're, you're in very close proximity to him. You guys are colleagues in real terms, and within that book, you're right in the center of things, but also it documents uh, rejections. You're, you're uh, both sort of in the center and and on the periphery. So I, I'm curious if at that point in your career it was harder still to maintain that sense of, of self and a purpose or if you weren't able to feel most days of the week that you were, you know, nearing recognition. I was involved in such a busy um, scene at the time that, I, that I, I, didn't, I didn't have time to be introspective about it. We, you know, we would... We, we were churning out comics. We were doing comics for each other's small press booklets. You know, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be putting out one, then my pal Phil Elliott would put out one, or Glenn Dakin would put out one, whatever. But we'd invite each other into our our books. So you're, you're, you're always doing something for somebody's book, and I know we didn't have time to 
we had our own aesthetic ideas about what a comic was supposed to be. And, and these ideas evolved as we butted up against each other's ideas. And uh, we had a much more rigorous and demanding idea of what a comic was supposed to be. Then, then I saw around me much later, you know, I, I, like all the, all the self-publishing guys in the 90s, you know, the, a lot of that was kind of wishy-washy stuff. I didn't really understand what one of us doing the Packers book. Dave Sim was doing Cerebus and a lot of those things. That, a lot of, I, I can't remember what they were, but a lot of those smelt self, a lot of those guys doing self-published comics. I, a lot of it I thought was kind of wishy-washy. It didn't have that hardline aesthetic that we had in the, the English small press in the eighties. But this all seems so long ago. I mean, I, I, I you know, whatever. One thing that interests me about your early year, your years, and this loops back to the start of our conversation about comics and its history, is that you came of age as an artist parallel to, uh, you know, the emergence of punk rock in England when, um, yeah. you know, being ahistorical was in vogue, which, which makes me curious in general about your relationship to other forms, other media. Uh, so I, I'm curious what works from another medium have influenced you the most? I don't think another medium as such, but what I always wanted what I always wanted to do was what I always imagined was the apex of what we could aspire to was was the newspaper daily strip. I remember I was talking to Dave Simmons, he said, Oh that's another medium. That's a different <laughs> he saw that as a different medium from what we were doing. Mm -hmm. For instance, I I always thought that what Neil Adams was doing in the Ben Casey newspaper strip was much more interesting than anything he ever did in comic books. When he became a comic book artist, he just became a <laughs> he became a blowhard. Maybe the early Dead Men's, you know, were, were kind of interesting, but later the stuff he's done recently. Oh my God! Is it disheartening then to open a newspaper today? I don't know what the selection of daily comics is like in the Chicago Tribune, say, but oh, I can't, like the, I can't. Well, it. this it's is terrible. This is the thing, though. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the hard to practice. It's hard to believe that I once regarded a. The newspaper comic as being the highest thing we could aspire to. I, I thought they were more interesting than the comic books in the, in the 60s. I thought there's nothing in comic books as interesting as Walt Kelly's Pogo. I even think there's nothing in comic books as interesting as, as Mary Perkins on stage. That fellow in Chicago, just he's just finished publishing the whole 16 volumes of it from beginning to end. Is it 23 years of it? Of, of you know, Daily and Sunday. Mm. It's a magnificent work. The last two or three years is unreadable, the, the terror. But at its best, it was a beautifully written thing. It was a very sophisticated uh, comic. It was more sophisticated than anything I've ever read in a comic book. I do wonder if that accounts... Except maybe for Watchmen. <laughs> if that accounts for, uh, you know, the, the impulse of a lot of cartoonists to want to quarantine the formats you see in newspaper strips, even if it's intellectually lazy, just that the level of quality is so poor in, in contemporary newspapers. Oh, it's dreadful, yeah. It's dreadful. When I say comic books, I mean American. 32-page comic book. And it's not always clear. Coming coming from England, where we have a completely different culture of comics, you know, the, uh, the weekly comic paper is a completely different thing from the American comic mm -hmm. book. And the, every country has its own separate tradition 
uh, of, of comics and they have their own name for it. This is something I, I this is something I stumbled on recently. Every every you know in Spain it's Tebe or in France it's Bong de Dessine and Italy it's Fumetti and Japan it's uh, the manga. In America the comic books and, and they all have the they all have their own stylistic uh, customs. Comics are always drawn one way. In comic books, I mean, in, in comic books, characters stand a certain way. They mm-hmm. they relate to the frame in a certain way. They they relate to the word balloon in a specific way, and these things are constant all through the history of comic books. And comic book writers and artists are not aware of it. They think it's the norm. They're not aware that it's a national habit, and that comics in other countries are done completely differently. Even facial expressions. You have facial expressions that only ever happen in comic books. They don't happen in any other kind of art or real life. Mm. They only happen in comic books. But they've all got their own separate digitions with, different, with their own separate names. But when they all discovered the graphic novel idea, they all got the same name for it. You know, in Italy, it's... In Spain, it's La Novella Grafica. Mm. In, in France, it's La Romaine Graphique. And in the old days... If a comic book got republished in another country, they'd have to take it apart and reassemble it according to the customs of that other country. For instance, in Japan, they'd have to run it back to front. Mm. They'd have to flip it, you know what I mean? Flip the page, run it back to front. So it reads left to right, back to front. But that doesn't happen now. When a graphic novel is published in another country, its original format, its original structure... Is respected, so from hell in Japan runs from front front to back mm-hmm. and f- from left to right. They don't reassemble it because uh, another important thing of the, of the graphic novel ideas that um, we're, we're reading the work of, of an author. We're interested in that author's worldview. We're interested in what he's got to say, and part of that is the structure of the work, obviously. So we're definitely in a new era here where things are done differently, however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I never decided to call it the graphic novel. Except comic books, for whom the graphic novel is just a format. It's just a form. An editor once said to me, he said, Eddie, you're raising the bar too high. It's just a format. <laughs> they didn't actually say you're raising the bar too high. I added that bit. <laughs> I added that bit in. I, I kind of think that's a great note to end on. <laughs>